Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. If you are a guest with us, I hope that you have felt warmly welcomed by our faith community. We are grateful that you are here. And if you are a guest with us, it may be helpful for you to know that here at Eastside, we have been in something of an extended preaching journey. We are almost completing this journey come Advent. We've been working our way through what is called the Revised Common Lectionary. And the lectionary, as it is commonly abbreviated, is a three-year cycle of readings from the Old and from the New Testaments that pastors and priests from around the world and across theological denomination and tradition are encouraged to sync up with and preach from, um, from time to time in the lives of their faith communities. And this morning, we are going to be preaching from the reading from Luke. And Abby led us through the beginning of chapter 14 of Luke last Sunday, and this Sunday we're going to be picking up where she left off. And just, as, just an FYI, this is a very intense reading, so be prepared. Jesus turns on a dime and he speaks these um, intense words to this crowd that is following him. So friends, as you're able, if you would, please rise with me for the reading of the Holy Gospel from Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, Luke writes... Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and and estimate the cost to see whether or not you have enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if it has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Holy One, God who was, God who shall be, may you break into our presence. As I preach these words, I pray that you would speak through them and in spite of me, And as I preach, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts in this time would indeed be found right, good, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. pray all this in the name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord. Everyone said, amen, friends. You may be seated.
told you it was an intense passage. And I've given a lot of thought to it this week. And what I've come to realize is that it begins to make a lot more sense if we zoom out. Because this scene comes right on the coattails of a whole lot of talk about banquets. Last week, Abby talked about banquets. Jesus was literally at a banquet, and seemingly at this banquet, he begins to use banquets as a metaphor, as a teaching tool for those present. From teaching that the powerful ought to take the humble seats at the table, to a parable about who you should invite when you throw a banquet, to another parable about when God throws the great banquet of the kingdom come, many of us are going to be too busy with the stuff of our own lives to even show up. There's a lot of talk about banquets at the front end of Luke chapter 14. But our reading this morning takes a hard narrative shift from the banquet scenes. People are no longer sitting and eating at the feet of Jesus. Instead, we encounter Jesus who is up and is walking, right? Which leads me to believe that Luke wants us to see that the time for eating with and learning from the rabbi is over, at least for right now. It's time for some action. It's time to do something, to get moving. Jesus, he's on a mission. But Luke tells us that Jesus is not alone, and he's not just with him and his own disciples, but there's this large crowd that is following him. And I think the implication here that Luke is making is that these are people who are coming from the last scene with all the banquet talk. I think Luke is implying that these are possibly wealthy elites who were enamored by Jesus' wisdom and his brilliance. A wealthy crowd enamored by Jesus' ability to offer a great insight and to open people's minds to new truths about the divine, the scriptures, life, the world. Perhaps these were people who loved the intellectual and the spiritual side of Jesus, the brilliant Jesus, the compelling Jesus. Is Luke depicting for us a crowd who wanted Jesus to continue to satiate their religious and spiritual hunger, even though the banquet is over? Is Luke depicting a consumer crowd? A crowd who instead of simply going forth after the banquet and the teachings, going out and doing what Jesus had taught them, are following behind him just wanting more teaching. See, I wonder if Luke's larger juxtaposition in chapter 14 is between sitting and eating and learning and then standing up, going forth and doing. Is our Messiah annoyed with this crowd because instead of literally following him around, he wants these people to go back out into their lives and put into practice everything that they had been talking about at the banquet? In this case, is their following him around a missing of the point and not actually following in the way Jesus wants them to? I wonder if this crowd doesn't just want another pithy parable. Well, Jesus wants them to go do the work, to apply in their lives what they have already been taught. See, friends, there's nothing wrong with spiritual and intellectual hunger. There's nothing wrong with 
a desire to receive spiritual nourishment. I want a spiritually hungry congregation. I want a congregation that voraciously consumes the scriptures and theology and reads good spiritual books, listens to podcasts, has brilliant discussions in their core groups. I want and pray for a spiritually hungry congregation, and I hope that much of the work that we do here at Eastside is soul nourishment for you all. From Sunday worship to core groups to Eastside University to the special studies we offer from time to time, I want us to sit together and feed at the feet of our rabbi and to be nourished. But I think in part, what our text this morning is saying is that there is a difference between simply being spiritually nourished by the Christ and then actually getting up and becoming an active disciple of the Christ. Discipleship is not simply passive reception. It requires us to do something. And Jesus doesn't seem convinced that most of the people in this crowd actually want to do something in their lives, in the real world, to actually embody his teachings. So he employs hyperbole. And if you aren't familiar, hyperbole is a way of overstating something to make a bigger point. You always say that. Well, no, they don't always say that. I'm starving. No, children of mine, you're not actually starving. You just ate five minutes ago. Hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration to catch your attention, to make a point. Jesus uses a lot of it this morning. He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. He later says, Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Then verse 33, he says, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Now, does Jesus really want you to hate your family, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters? Does Jesus really want you to hate your life? Does Jesus really want you to give up all of your possessions? If we read that literally, that would include the clothes that are on your back right now, which would mean they would all be naked together. It's awkward. And I don't think that's the point of the text. I think in part, at least a point is, following him around, simply waiting for another pithy story isn't discipleship. Jesus requires more of us. Discipleship is about the whole course of our lives. It's about human transformation. Embodying the way of the Christ as a disciple, Jesus says, must be first priority in your life. He says it takes precedence over everything, even family. It's first order. You're a first day disciple of the Christ, then you are a husband or a father or a mother or a child. It goes child of God, disciple of Christ, everything else. That's his point. And further, his point is that there will be times in your life that your fidelity to the way of the Christ will cause division probably in your human family. Because not everyone holds to the same values of Jesus. Not everyone reads Jesus the same way. And everyone in your family may not necessarily hold to the values of Jesus. Many families are still feeling the effects of this after 2016. 
So quick summary of the text as a whole. First, discipleship is not just waiting for another pithy parable. It's actually about doing the work. Second, if you actually do the work and embody the way of Christ in your life and in the world, some people aren't going to like you and there will be consequences. And third, be sure to count the cost before jumping into this discipleship thing. To get at this third point, count the cost, Jesus offers two examples. First, he asks the question, what builder begins to build a building before he makes sure he has enough money to complete the project? Ironically, living in Atlanta, we saw great examples of this all over the city after the housing bubble burst and we entered into the Great Recession. There were literally half-built homes and structures all over the place because everybody ran out of money. Jesus tells this crowd, make sure you know what you're getting into, that you've counted the cost. Otherwise, when the going gets tough and you walk away, you're going to look foolish. Jesus' second example is one of a king considering going into battle. The king only has 10,000 troops. His enemy has 20,000. Count the cost. He has half as many troops. Are his troops stronger? Are they faster? Do they have weaponry that their opponents do not? Jesus says, give up all your possessions. Count the cost. Would this wealthy crowd be willing to do what it would take to embody the way of Jesus in their real lives? Would they shrink back when they learned that it was going to cost them something to become a part of the Christ movement? So I've struggled with this text this week because, quite frankly, it's tough on multiple levels. Who wants to follow Jesus if that means hating your life? I don't want to hate my life. I want to love the one life, the precious life that God has given me. So what does it mean to hate your life? What I do want is my life to be transformed so much so that the old way of being looks like I hate it. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ, to actually follow Jesus? It's actually really stunningly simple, and it's embedded in this text itself. It means we don't just listen to Jesus. We don't just read about him. It means we obey him. We actualize him in the way we live our lives. And as you've heard me say many times before, the capstone, the bedrock, the summary of all of the teachings of Jesus, of his life, of his ministry, in this text when he says to carry the cross, it's all summed up in this axis, this axis of love. When the rich young lawyer seeking to trip Jesus up says, what's the most important of it all? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as your... This sums up the whole thing. And it's an axis. Love God, vertical. Love neighbor, horizontal. And in the text, what does Jesus tell them to carry? What is a cross? It's an axis. He's saying, carry the summary of the whole thing and embody it in your life if you want to be my disciple. Carry your cross. Carry the axis of love in your life. 
which of course begs the definition or begs the question of definitions, what is the Christian definition of love? And I always go to Philippians chapter 2 and to the Greek word kenosis, to pouring out of ourselves for the good of others and for the good of the world. John Wesley said, do no harm and do all the good you can. Christian love is the examination of every action you take or make in your life asking, who does this help? Who does this hurt? And am I making God proud right now by the way I am behaving? Carry your cross. Carry the axis of love. Why become a disciple of Jesus? I genuinely believe that if all of humanity followed in the way of the Christ and lived by the axis of love, our world would literally be transformed. If every human put every one of their actions, attitudes, ways of being, behaviors under the light of the axis of others-centered love, our world would be transformed overnight. Narcissism would be a thing of the past. That'd be nice, right? People would stop hurting one another. People wouldn't text and drive. Politicians would actually care about the constituency they're called to serve. Economic disparity would slowly ebb away because the rich would do as Jesus commands and they would give away their possessions so that the poor might be lifted out of poverty and we might live in a more equitable society. Human trafficking would be done overnight. Homophobia, racism, misogyny, bigotry, they would all necessarily melt away because if you're living by the axis of other-centered love, you can't have any of that. The system would slowly transform to be such that there would be good, basic health care for every human being on the planet because every human being would be making decisions based on the best interests of everyone else. If everyone in the world placed the needs of everyone else above their own basic, above their own, and if they made this the basic human pattern by which they lived, if we all did an inventory of our lives using the axis of love, the cross, as the interrogator, and then we made the real changes in the way we lived and the way we loved, what kind of impact could just the people in this room make going back out this week? Don't hear me wrong, y'all are a loving bunch, you're much more loving than most. But our God is infinite, and our God is love. And each of you are made in the image of God, which begs the question, what does that say about your capacity to love? Does it have a cap on it? Does infinity have a cap on it? Now the problem is, of course, as the Apostle Paul puts it, the old self, the old pattern, our first way of being human, it often gets in the way. The selfish, narcissistic part. I mean, we're born selfish. Babies are selfish. They have to be to survive. But good mothers grow up, and many become arguably the most selfless human beings on the planet and care for these narcissistic little clumps of humanity. But much of the problem with the world today is that too many human beings continue into adulthood 
as narcissistic, self-centered babies who think the whole world is about their own self or something to that effect. Our old selves don't want us to do the work because our old selves know that the work of becoming who it is God is calling us to be is hard. Becoming a disciple is hard. Having our lives transformed by the Christ is hard. But we do the hard work because it's the best way to be human. The hard work of human transformation ultimately leads to the fruits of the Spirit, to true joy, to freedom, to fulfillment in this life and in life to come. Friends, the Christ, he beckons us to to, to grow up and to become fully and truly human. And I know from experience Humans who have patterned their lives after Christ's axis of love are some of the most amazing people to be around. Some of you know what I'm talking about. People of God, we are called to carry the cross, to carry on our backs wherever we go the greatest of these commandments. Love God, love one another. We are called to carry the axis in every part of our lives, from our family to our work life to the way we spend our money to the way we spend our time. We are called to filter everything through this others-centered love. And this is not a sentimental kind of love. This is a love with teeth. Love isn't nice. Nice is passive. The love Jesus speaks of is a love with teeth. It is a love that will march. It is a love that will protest. It is a love that will call out injustice. It is a love that will challenge the status quo until the status quo begins to finally listen and then to finally begin to change. This is a powerful love. And the beautiful thing about being a part of a loving Christian community like Eastside, it means that we don't have to carry our crosses alone. This is not a go-alone, rugged, individualistic command. This is something we get to do together in community. We carry them together and we encourage one another on our journeys of discipleship. We get to help one another carry the axis. I'll end with this. One of the needs that our lay leadership and staff have come to recognize is a greater need for this love to be applied internally for you all. There's a need for a greater level of internal care and love at East Side. And believe it or not, it's a challenge for me to keep up with y'all. Everything that's going on in your lives, the the good things, births of babies, the bad things, such as a loved one fighting cancer. And Eastside is a bit of a strange church in that we worship between 150 and 200 people on a Sunday, yet we only have one full-time staff person, you're looking at them, and two part-time staff people, Roxy and Heidi. And we try hard to keep up with you all everything that's going on in your lives. We want to keep up with you all, but sometimes things fall through the cracks. And when that happens, the message out there on our banners that you are loved, that message does not get properly conveyed. So with an aim to work harder to make sure that you all know that you are loved, we've developed an Eastside Congregational Care Team. This team is made up of Amy Howard, 
Katie Coleman, Kirsten Sharps, Troy Kyber, and Jennifer Stolnacker. And they're going to be working with me to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks. And I, and I say this in part just so you're aware that there may be times when you receive a call from Troy or a note from Katie or an email from Jennifer. And as a team, folks, we're going to be internally communicating. So if there's something going on in your life, you can reach out to any of these people and they will make sure the whole team knows what's going on. We're setting up an email, care at eastside.org. That if you have something going on in your life, you have a prayer request, you didn't get a chance to talk to Tim after service and you want to make sure we know what's going on, you can email that in and the team will be aware of it and can pray about it and then reach out to you in some form or fashion. We've worked hard to make sure Atlanta, outside of these walls, knows the east side is a place that, that wants them to experience the love of God. We just want to make sure that we all know that internally as well, that you really are loved. That we get to carry the cross together, friends. And we want to be there for you. We want you to be there for one another so that we can be there together for the world. Are you with me? Together, may we carry our cross of love inside and outside. In the name of the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Redeemer. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.